Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing To Have and to Hope by Martha Waters. This is the first book in the Regency Vows series. Um, it was published in 2020 and we actually read it because we received a advanced reader copy of the second book in the series. And I started it and told Meg I was not finishing it until I went and read the first book. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be 100% completely honest. The I have not did not read this book when it came out, even though it was, you know, pretty popular around the romance, whatever, environment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because the entire premise of this book is like everything that I hate. Basically, like I hate marriage and crisis, like they're my True. least favorite. Yep. And I hate miscommunication issues, which this is this book is based on. And I hate lying to your partner as well, which is also what this book is based on. Um, so I was not planning on reading this book. And I, in fact, thought that the second book was totally fine as a standalone. It was uh, not. But Lane listeners. did not feel so feel that way. <laughs> I told Meg if I didn't read the first book, this whole review of the second book would just be me pissed off that I didn't understand the backstory. So we did this. But that said, I'm glad I read this. All right. So, Let's read the book jacket. The course of true love or irritation never did run smooth. Five years ago, Lady Violet Grey and Lord James Audley met, fell in love, and married. Four years ago, they had a fight to end all fights and have barely spoken since. Their once passionate love may have dissolved into cold, detached politeness. But when Violet receives a letter that James has been thrown from his horse, she races to be by his side, only to discover him alive, well, and baffled by her concern. Outraged, Violet decides to feign an illness of her own to teach her estranged husband a lesson. And so begins an ever-escalating game of manipulation and a great deal of flirtation between a husband and wife who might not hate each other as much as they thought. In this warring marriage, which spouse will be the victor? And will the real prize be winning back the love they each thought they'd lost? The answer is yes. That is the real prize. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> That's not and, like uh, jacket. Sorry, guys. In terms of who will be the victor, it's both of them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, this this I have no issues with the jacket. This jacket does a great job of setting up what you're going to be reading in the book. Uh, this is exactly why I didn't want to read the book. But if this sounds like something that you would like to read, then that's what this book is. I will say the spoiler-free version of this, this is absolutely the setup. Yes. Her tricking him and him buying into it for 300 pages is not the plot of this book. No. No, but like it says, there is an ever escalating game of manipulation. Yes. So I'm just saying if this had been her 
sat in bed, faking consumption, flipping back and forth just between her bed and doing real things when he wasn't around with him becoming increasingly anxious, I would have hated this book. Mm -hmm. That is not what this book was. No. So as usual, we did generate a random number and then we wrote summaries based on that number. And for this week, the number is 10. So I'll go ahead and start off. Here's my 10 word summary. The best way to fix a marriage is by lying. Yeah. Yep. That is also what broke the marriage. That was one of my <laughs> biggest issues with this book. I was like, really? Really, Violet? Really? He thinks you're a big fat liar. And so the way that you're going to win him back is by just really like actually being a liar. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. It's, it, you know, th it worked for them, which is why I just laid this statement out there. It did. Um, so my 10 word summary, his near death experience didn't fix your marriage. Big one. <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I, I will say, I realized that I just spent several minutes saying that I hate this premise, that I <laughs> hate the lying, um, that I hate all of that stuff about this book. I just want to say before we move any further that Martha Waters writing is so good that she made me find this book pretty tolerable. <laughs> I want to talk about the tropes in this book. Okay. But then I think before we talk about the plot of this book in more detail, I want to talk about the setup for this series. Okay, let's do it. So um, before we do anything else, I just want to say that his body is just like fan-fucking-tastic. And there's not even an attempt made to play Gentleman Jackson lip service. Nah. He's got strapping thighs. He's got muscular forearms. She runs her hands over his chiseled abs. He sits at a desk all day. <laughs> I mean, he rides some horses, but she doesn't try to make us believe that riding horses is going to, like, She make also it. is pretty clear that he only rides them when he has to and is pretty ambivalent about it. <laughs> yep. Well, he goes riding every morning. But, like, around the park, not, like, at a gallop or, at, like, true. not as exercise. It's true. It's true. It's not his, yeah. yeah. It's not like he takes a horse to go miles around the estate every day like he goes and gets seen on rotten row once a day <laughs> so uh, good so the major trope of this book is marriage in crisis yes so they were compromised on a balcony where a they were where they were waltzing with no music and were forced to marry but it was a love match it was a love match so they, they met, like they literally, he proposes literally 10, 15 minutes after they meet for the first time. Yes. Max, like maybe even less. But later he, he tells her that, you know, he would have been calling on her. He would have proposed within two weeks anyway. So mm -hmm. that's fine. So it was, it was sweet. I also really liked, okay, Lane, this is really dumb, but I love that she was 18 and he was 23. Because that's how old I was when I met my husband. That's how old he was. So I was that's like, aw, this could happen. And adorable. Yeah. Were so you we, compromised and forced to marry within a month? 
No, <laughs> no, we we got married six years later, but still, <laughs> still, it, like we could have gotten married, and I think we still would have, like we would have made it. <laughs> I don't think we would have given each other the silent treatment after a year. So, it huh. is a good argument for a long courtship. <laughs> Just saying, it's perfect. Um, so they both have terrible parents. Just downright awful in different ways. His dad is sort of the typical aloof Duke parent who very much views his children as the heir and the spare and treats them as such. Right. And her mother is the scheming, matchmaking mama who's unhappy with anything her daughter does taken to an extreme. And her father is... You got Ab- the... Absent? he's the one who gives the horse to her husband that almost kills him. Yes. Like you've mentioned in passing, he's alive, but he seems sort of like he's always just been on the fringe of her life. Right. Yeah. So. Lane was talking about how she doesn't necessarily want to talk about all of the tropes. Yeah, so their meet-cute was a setup. Yes. But they were awful parents, as we mentioned. Um, but the other thing is, upon his marriage, his father gave him a house and an occupation, like gave him the family stables. And in spite of the fact that horses are not his area of interest, as we've talked about, he's like obsessed with bringing them to success to largely please his father and be validated by him for the first time in his life. And the reason that his father has become so, uh, like, micromanagey about James's life, did forget his name there for a second, um, is because his older brother, who is the heir to the dukedom, is presumed never to marry or have children. Yes. Because so, in a trope, curricle accident, because he was racing his curricle with a best friend. And that incident may have left him impotent. And definitely killed his BFF. Correct. So, and this is where we say, like, so he's the second son, but the presumed heir. Right. And his children are the presumed heirs. So this friend group is really tropey. Yes. Except in one really distinct way that I loved. So all of the guys are friends from Eaton. There are three guys who are all in the same grade, let's say, who are now of various levels of rank within the peerage. And then there's another guy who was a couple years older than them who now gave up his aristocratic trimmings to run a theater trope. And then the women are... Three, like, neighbors, friends growing up. And then there's a fourth who's a little older and was, like, the ex-quarter of a of the older brother, of James's older brother in the accident. And James's older brother is also in this friend group. And then there's another widow who shows up later. So it's sort of like five and five. And you can tell they're all going to end up together. But what makes this different from a lot of other romance novels is of the five women who have sort of been introduced as interesting, 
Violet's married, and her book is Marriage in Crisis. Three are widows, none of whom have children, all of whom are, like, in their early 20s. And one is on the shelf-ish, like, approaching it as a single debutante, but is openly talking about sex, ruining herself, and possibly eloping to get out of her trope father's gambling debt. Well, and they all have, like, a trope, right? Yeah. So, like... Diana's a widow. She was mercenary. She married an older dude. She's happy that he died. And now she's like, being a widow is awesome, for example. Sophie married a dude. She she was almost engaged to West. And then he had this carriage at this curricle accident. And then it's heavily implied his father forced her to marry. His father forced her to marry someone else. Honestly, we don't really know what happened. But yeah. while, you know, like before he even recovered, she was married to someone else. Mm-hmm. Who's now dead. Right. And that marriage, it's heavily implied, was very unhappy from the start. Right. Diana's wasn't unhappy. Diana actually, well, we'll talk about Diana in the second book. But so the point is, there are more tropes than we can even talk about here. So many. Because this series is just a bevy of them, and they're all set up in the first book. Mm-hmm. But so, like, let's go back to this one. James is um, independently wealthy because of his mother's fortune. Mm -hmm. Violet was the sole heir of her parents and is independently rather well-to-do, which is part of why she's so frustrated at his fascination with working late at this job he doesn't even like. (laughs) Yeah, I, I will say, Lane, this book unlike a lot of other historical romances, and I'm not sure why this one as opposed to others, because they all have the same thing. They all have servants. They all have butlers. They all tell their housemates to do things. But this one, especially perhaps because she's she's desperate to have him quit his job, <laughs> really hit home to me, like the social class and the social, mm-hmm. the social stratification. Because I was like, I mean, yes, it would be pretty awesome if I could just be like, like to my 23-year-old husband, when I was 18, just like, oh, my God, I hate that you have to go to work every day. Could you, like, stay home with me? And it just hit me. I was like, ooh. Well, and I, but I also think it's interesting because a lot of times even the most well-to-do, unmarried 18-year-old debutantes still have a sense of fear, right? That they might be from this polished upper crust, but their only access to power and autonomy is through a man. Mm-hmm. And I think that this group of women specifically – that four of the five have security can just be lays about spenders, go to the theater, have all new wardrobes. Like there's, especially with the women, but he, but yeah, it's like a social and economic freedom that you're just not going to see with even the most, most affluent 18 year old romance novel heroine. Yeah because she still has to fear for what might happen to her if she doesn't get a match. (laughs) So I I thought this was really well written for a debut novel. I was surprised this was a debut novel. Mm -hmm. So it was good. It's, I found the structure Mm -hmm. and the characters more fun than the execution. Uh, um, I mean, I thought her execution was the reason why I liked this book more than I expected to. I meant execution of the plot, not her writing style. Yeah. I mean, the, just look, 
I just feel like these tropes, regardless of how well you're going to write them, are just never going to be my thing. That's fair. And this is where I'm struggling with how to separate these two books. I felt like with both this one and To Love and Loathe, I found, like, frankly, they should have been having sex sooner. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't disagree. I will they should have been making out sooner. Like, the whole point of this one is that, like, there's a thin line between love and hate. And they did a lot of bitching without hooking up. I would have found a lot of the ongoing animosity more fun if they hadn't been able to keep their hands off each other. Like, she, in this book, especially toward the ending, they both had their spoiler alert revelation that they still love each other and wanted to work it out twice each. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, just cut off the last, like, three chapters. Yeah. And that's what I mean by execution. Not, like, the way the moments were written were fun and adorable, and she made me buy into things I definitely wouldn't have otherwise bought into. But, like, there was some fat that should have been cut. Yeah. I was, I could not handle the fact that they haven't talked to each other for four years. That was just way too long for me. I could honestly see four months and I it would have been much more believable to me well, to be clear they haven't like straight up not spoken a single word like you know in passing at a ball like they'll ride together in a carriage they'll help her down they'll exchange pleasantries to a mild degree it's not like it's been full-on silent treatment but what they haven't actually communicated in four years. Yeah. I And I guess, I don't know if this is like just personal, but I have never been able to hold a grudge for that long. Like not with someone that I love. I can't go that long without talking. Well, and that's the thing too. She is, <laughs> she's described as someone who loves to talk. Right. right? Like she literally is someone who loves to talk. And so he hears her talking with her friends all the time. And he's like, oh, I wish you would talk to me. And, you know, like, whatever, that's that's fine. I'm just like, really? Four yeah. years? Or, like, maybe they had their fight two years. If she really wanted them to be five years later, if she really wanted them to be 20. She wanted Violet and her friends to be 23, mm-hmm. which, fine, I get it. You wanted to be a little older. Make the fight happen a little bit later. Yeah. You know? Uh, just for me, four years was a lot. And this is something that I have talked about in a lot of other books, um, especially second chance romance where they've been separated for like seven years. <laughs> That's too much for me. <laughs> it's like four years of being married and not, not even once trying to like broach the subject. Of and I think the hard fight. part is though, like the longer they're married, the more ridiculous the fight is. Right. Yes. Cause Which the whole, no, but like, the whole point was they didn't really know each other when they got married and the fight that led to them not talking for such a long time happened sort of right as they were starting to open up to each other and really feel like a partnership. Right. Whereas I think the same fight happening four years in, you'd have different complaints. Like yeah. you're kidding. Like, you know, effectively for them, a year into marriage was like a year into dating. Yeah. But like yeah. to have the fight, have the fight two years in. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not saying it couldn't have been better. I'm saying that I think we'd have different complaints depending on Maybe. the reason not communicating. <laughs> it's possible. On. But I, I mean, I always have issues with these, these very long lengths of time um, yeah. where they're separated. Um, 
And then the other thing that always gets to me is they just, they're, they are not communicating at all about anything. And she's managed to hold on to her anger for like four years. Like she's still viscerally angry at him. And mm-hmm. I'm like, dang, like this is really, she is intense. If she can handle that, that much emotion for four years. I mean, him too. They've both been pissed yes. for four years. Yes. I just feel like we're in her head more often about the, the anger. Yeah. Because he's more like, I, I saw him more as like, oh, I wish, he, I felt like he would think sometimes, oh, we could reconcile and then she would piss him off. Like she would say something mm-hmm. in anger that would piss him off more. Right. Uh, which I think matches their characters. They both bait each other constantly. Yes. Uh, and so for four years, they've refused to talk to each other about anything of significance. And now they finally do decide to talk to each other. And instead, every single word out of their mouths is a lie. They just are lying to each other constantly. Right. So for me, it was just like this melange of everything I dislike. Marriage in crisis. They've been separated for four years. They had a miscommunication. And now they're just lying to each other. So all of those things together, for me, that's just like everything I hate. So basically, if her writing weren't as charming as it is, and also I really do think that the world she created, the characters um, that she created, and the way they interact with each other, if it wasn't as engrossing as it is, I think I straight out would have hated this book. I think she has a little bit in common with Elizabeth Boyle, funnily enough, because we've been reading a lot of her lately, Mm. in that part of what makes these ridiculous situations that I find otherwise really frustrating bearable Mm -hmm. is that they're written tongue in cheek and sort of meant to be funny. I don't think she succeeds as well as Elizabeth Boyle does, especially with this one. But I do think the fact that the constant lies are played more for situational humor than for angst. Yeah. Most of the time. Most there of the were time, certain scenes that but, played it for angst. I wasn't as fond of those, but I think I can forgive a lot when it's like you said, witty, charming scenarios yes. rather than angsty ones. I will say what I started reading. Cause I was like, Oh, Blaine's going to read it. I guess I'll like read it and we'll see what, what definitely made me want to continue was the fact that a lot of the conflict between them before the big blow up fight, mm-hmm. they were, they did still have a lot of arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, They were a very volatile couple. And most of their arguments were about his job. Mm -hmm. And he, he was saying, and he still believes that he's doing this for her. I want to succeed for you. I want to be a man who's worthy of you. And she was like, he doesn't trust me to be like, to be telling him the truth that like, I don't need you to do that for me. And so that was the moment when I was like, oh, we're going to be critiquing toxic masculinity. Yes, I will be happy to read this book. <laughs> so that was the other part for me that I appreciated a lot. I also really liked that diverse, not diverse in terms of race or social class <laughs> or nationality or but part of what I liked about this social group that is more experienced than the Norman romance novels was I thought the background characters and the scenarios were different and more fun than I was expecting them to be. Yes. Like if her friends had all been a bunch of unmarried debutantes, I don't think this book would have been as fun as it was. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. 
And I did also like, so again, I do think that a lot of the book, it wasn't like a, it didn't bash you over the head with it, but I do think a lot of the book critiqued toxic masculinity in interesting ways. So there was a job. uh, But then also at the end, he's like, he has never, neither of them have told anyone ever about what their fight was about. Mm -hmm. And when he finally comes clean he there there are specific parts in the book where he's like look I've been taught the value of a sip off her lip but you know what maybe I need to express myself maybe I need to talk to my friends about my emotions maybe there's a value in this kind of thing and that I, I am a sucker for that so I liked that a lot oh and even with his like issues with his father and the way they influenced his relationship with his brother like this book is him working through managing those relationships more productively without letting them eat away at him emotionally. Yeah. Yep. And then also similar to Elizabeth Boyle, I thought that Martha Waters does a great job of using courtesy titles. So this is I was you. so impressed with that through this whole thing. Look, uh-huh. she dumps literally nine pretty not fleshed out, but like identifiable characters who you know are going to be important long-term in this text. They are all referred to consistently, appropriately with all, and these are all people with titles and they're related to each other in different ways and they have to address each other different ways in different scenarios. I was super impressed with it. Well, and there were little parts, This that's what I love about historical romance too, is it presents, it's almost like a different culture that you're reading about, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a part where he's like, yes, this is the lady James. And she thinks back wistfully to the beginning of their marriage where he used to introduce her as violet lady James, even yeah. though it was inappropriate in such formal settings because it made her feel like she had her own identity. And it was those little deliberate choices that really elevated this. Exactly. So was there anything that you thought needed a content warning or anything offensive about this book? I mean, I I think we've kind of touched on what was frustrating about this book. And I think I'd consider the problems with this book frustrations more than trigger or offensiveness warnings. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Anything we haven't talked about already, like the lying and the lying. <laughs> the, the lying, lying. and the lying and the manipulation yeah. and more lying. Yeah. But, you know, you, she makes it very obvious that that is going to happen if you read the jacket. So, you know what? Right. <laughs> Content warning. Right. Um, so, sexy. I said this book was moderately sexy. It wasn't closed I, door. It wasn't closed door. This book was backloaded in its sexiness in yep. a way I didn't quite understand with the plot. Because if you're trying to convince me these are two people who have never lost their spark or their tundra for one another, I think a really effective way to prevent that, to present that is to have them jumping back into sex before they're communicating. Not saying I would have liked that book more or less, but I found it a little bit in some ways actually unbelievable well, how well they were doing it, keeping their hands off one another. Well, and can you imagine, I don't think it would have hurt the book if, so I don't think it's as much of a spoiler to say that she says that she has tuberculosis and he figures out pretty quickly that she doesn't, right? Correct. It's very quick. <laughs> yeah. Which, which elevates their, their whole thing. So like, you know, she, 
she figures out pretty soon that he knows that she's not sick, you know? So it, it's, it's, it just elevates the game as it says in the jacket. So I do think it would have been interesting or funny for, for her to, to use her illness as an excuse to have sex. Mm-hmm. Like, this could be the last time that we could have the chance to do it. And then he's like, I know she's not sick, but she wants to have sex. So maybe we should do it. You know what I mean? Well, or even not sex. The number of times he's sitting there thinking how bad he wants to kiss her and doesn't. Yeah. Or vice versa. The number of carriage scenes and frankly, big pet peeve of ours fight after sex. Yeah. Yep. Like I just wanted I bought the chemistry between these characters and the sex that was there was hot mm-hmm. and what was going on between them was hot, but I don't feel like <sighs> this is so damn cheesy. I like it when my, like my sex adds to the plot, like gives me a new dynamic to their relationship. Yeah. And I sort of don't feel like the sex in this book served that purpose Yeah, and opportunities where it could have were sort of missed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say there was a library hookup. So another trope. Please, yeah. women's authors, never stop writing library hookups. It was a window seat in a library specifically, and I only bring that up because that exact thing happens again in the second book, and I'm wondering if it will be an ongoing trend. Ooh, I like it. I would love it. Also, I want to know how you cleaned window seat cushions back then. Well, in this case, at least, it's not their house. So they wouldn't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Meg. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Lane's probably like, oh my God, what has happened in my house? You know, (laughs) I will say she did commit a cardinal sin, which Mm -hmm. is that she, they had carriage sex, but it was not on the page. So Martha, please don't ever do that again. I know this was your first book. You maybe didn't know. Don't do it. Yeah. if you start something like that, finish it. Yep. In the carriage. We were, we had bought in. I was like, this was like the final chapter. So I was like, yes, this is going to be an awesome way to end the book. Happy endings for all. No. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, if you like marriage in crisis and lying and miscommunication and stuff, you're going to love this book because it was, it was very well written. If you don't, you'll be able to handle this book. I think this series has enough premise. And like I said, I do think you're missing out in subsequent series if you don't read the earlier ones in this book. I mean, what is obviously going to be one of the next books in the series with their friend Emily, who's the unmarried one and the theater owner? Like, I'm pretty sure what would be the first five chapters of their book are interspersed between this one and the second one. Genuinely. And you're at least going to get those scenes from other perspectives. So um, the other thing that's interesting that she's doing here is these books kind of happen concurrently. Certain parts of them, yes. Certain mm-hmm. parts of them do. So you're, like, you see scenes in this book again in the second book from a different perspective. And it's far more frequent than I'm used to seeing in romance novels. Mm-hmm. So I do think like having the sense of what came before is more important than usual. The secondary characters are a bigger part of the plot than I'm used to. Because you're like, Lane, you're justifying this too hard. I I just don't, it just did not matter to me at 
all. <laughs> I think if you're interested in the concept of a group of more than typically empowered women, not a bunch of 18-year-old virgins, like this series has enough promise on that front that if even if the marriage in crisis doesn't appeal to you, if that does, I'd check out this series and I would start from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe.